Welcome to the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast, brought to you by members of the Horror Writers Association, Ontario Chapter. We thought we'd revive an old holiday tradition of telling ghost stories on a winter's eve, so with that, the Great Lakes Horror Company presents a special winter reading series. We're going to start with Three Wise Men, read by author Lou Rera. The Three Wise Men, Joel, Jonas, and Noah, by Lou Rera. Be here at five. That'll give me time to pick up the gold locket, Joel said. He hung up the phone and walked over to the hallway mirror. Oy vey, I'm getting old. As promised, the Wiseman brothers were on time. Joel hates that his younger brother Jonas smokes and the nastiest of brands, unfiltered camels. He struggled to squeeze his substantial girth into the back seat behind Noah. Put out that cigarette for Pete's sake, Jonas. I don't want to reek when we get to Mary's, Joel said. Did you pick up the gifts? Nice to see you too, brother. Yeah, I did. Saffron. She put it on at everything when she was pregnant, so I bought some imported from Spain. At fifteen hundred bucks a pound, I got her four grams, Jonas said. What about you, Noah? Joel said. A nicely wrapped Mrs. Meyer's lavender air freshener. I hate Febreze. It smells like a brothel, Noah said. Oh, yeah, and just for giggles, I bought some frankincense pellets and charcoal discs with a cool ceramic Buddha. Damn, I should have bought some myrrh oil. How cool would that be, Jonah said. Like in the butt. What? yelled Joel. You two remind me of Curly and Larry, or Costanza and Kramer. You're idiots. Couldn't you buy something nice for your sister Mary? They drove on in silence. The three Weissman brothers get along well, but Joel has taken the role of his father since their own was killed by a drunk driver last April during Passover. He's particularly hard on Jonas since he bailed him out of jail on a drug arrest. Jonas had told his lawyers it was only recreational. The judge didn't buy his story that five pounds of high-quality pot was for personal use. That amount of medical marijuana would be enough to get an army stoned for a decade, the judge said. Four years probation and one year community service. The judge slammed the gavel. Jonah later confided in Noah. I feared the words, five years in prison, would have echoed in my head like lost souls screaming in a canyon. As Noah drove his Audi toward the exit ramp, he said, Hey, look at that glow on the horizon. Aurora Borealis? Joel asked. No way, that's only visible in the north, and we're headed southwest and the sun set an hour ago. Maybe searchlights for an opening or something, Jonas said. Noah turned off the highway at 25th Street. A brilliant light on the horizon pulsed like an alien spaceship. Illuminated in the skyline, plumes of black smoke roiled in the western sky. He turned right onto West Bank Boulevard. There was a sense of urgency in the way Noah drove. Jonas looked over his shoulder, an involuntary habit he picked up after his arrest. Joel blurted out, What's the hurry, Noah? His shirt stuck to the back seat from sweat. Are you worried the baby's going to be in bed? Mary mentioned on the phone Yashua has been screaming his head off for days. She's exhausted, Joel said. Slow down. Well, what about Joseph? Isn't he helping? Or is he burning time in his shop again, cranking out that cheap crap he calls furniture? 
Noah said. Noah makes a hard right onto Palm Garden Estates. Fire trucks and flashing lights are everywhere. The intense light they'd seen was Joseph and Mary's house engulfed in flames rising hundreds of feet into the air. This is no ordinary fire. The tail end of an airplane or what's left of it is sticking out of the burning roof. Firefighters and EMTs scramble in a frenzy of activity. There are black body bags on the side of the road. Across the street, neighbors hug each other. Few women with sweaters around their shoulders sob. The Audi skids to a halt. Fire hoses crisscross the street. Without thinking, Joel, Noah, and Jonas jump out of the car, gifts in hand, stunned by the chaos as they run toward the crowd. Joel leads the way. In a panic, they jog up the driveway where people gather. The crowd moves aside, separating like a curtain on an opening act of a horrible play. The garage is trimmed with Christmas lights. Inside the garage, Mary rocks baby Yashua, her face black with soot. Flesh-colored lines zigzag down her tear-stained cheeks. Joseph kneels next to Mary and wipes the ring of soot from the baby's screaming mouth. The three Wiseman brothers glance at each other. Jonas is the first to kneel at Mary's feet. He places his gift by her chair. Noah and Joel do the same. No one speaks. In the background, a police officer yells, Get these people out of here! A news helicopter hovers above. Its searchlights finds the Weissman brothers as a photographer captures the drama. Mary, her husband Joseph, and soot-faced baby Yashua are framed in the eyepiece like a tourist postcard. The news breaks on CNN online. Plane crashes into house. Family and baby saved. Minister declares, God has delivered a Christmas miracle. 21 minutes later, the news feed update is horrifying. Tweets go out with the headline and hashtag, Family dies, explosion wipes out neighborhood, gas main suspected. 12 block area destroyed, baby lost as inferno rages. From the loudspeaker, inside the steeple of Our Lady of Hopeless Victory, a chintzy pre-recorded version of O Come All Ye Faithful echoes through the frigid night air throughout the neighborhood on 25th Street. Body parts everywhere. A mouse skitters in front of the altar at the church, sniffs the charred remains of a small arm and a chunk of smoldering frankincense, pauses, then is gone. Next, we have Santa is Dead But Not Buried, read by author Bill Snyder, also known as Zombie Zack of Afterrot. Santa's Dead But Not Buried, by Bill Snyder. Rose petals spin and fall away, memories of better and distant days. Blood-red splatter that covers the wall, specious times that's a different call. The day has fallen, decrepit and dry, another moment fallen, I must cry. At the way that things have turned awry, it matters not, for Santa surely had to die. 
Shivering in the cold, mayhap from the bold, actions taken earlier that day, so long ago. Santa had gone off the deep end, true enough, but to this extreme was life so easily sold. A tear I must shed, for Santa is now dead, dispatched by my hand, fouled and bled. Monstrous creation, oh, what have I done? Unleashed a beast of unholy description. Mrs. Claus, there's been an accident. The small-figured fellow, both unctus and mundane, whispered his way into her field of attention. With a bare minimum of effort, he conveyed volumes about the magnitude of what he wanted to say. She knew him. She knew how to read his moments. This one was important. He had that stance that spoke in that tiny, insidious manner that he had. Something was up, and he had to share it with her right now. Regardless of how insipid the creature was, he did usually have the right ear for information. She had to know what this was about. All right, Kevin. What is it? What's happened? Are you sure, ma'am, that I should speak of it here and now? He looked around at the others in the room. Or rather, he looked down his twisted, pockmarked hook of a nose at their presence. To actually look at the others would be to hint that they had meaning or importance, which he knew to be untruth. Yes, spit it out. You know how much I hate these moments of yours. What's the news? Have the rangers returned yet? A sliver of venom escaped the pit that her presence hid. This better be important, or I swear to some unholy thing, he's going to end up in the wrong end of a roasting spit. Indeed, ma'am, the rangers have returned. Unfortunately, the Blessed One has been injured. The Blessed One was the name that the ungainly creatures of this land had named her husband ever since they had shown up on their shores so many years ago. She never gave it any thought most of the time, as they would never share its origin or meaning. They kept translating it as Santa, but that held no import for her. She only knew him as husband, and not necessarily a good one. Kevin, get to the point. What has happened? Or do I have to wring your scrawny neck to get you to speak straight for once without having to slip into the or out of those mental conniptions of yours? The expression of painful remorse on his face was amusing for a moment, but quickly soured as that expression returned to his normal insidiousness, far quicker than normal. Those with her, the so-called coterie of her women's circle, snickered quietly at this mild reproof of the elf. Any opportunity to put one down was most taken. But of course, ma'am, he bowed deeply with a show of his respect and twin to his disdain as he continued on. Well, ma'am, it appears that the Blessed One has taken a direct hit in the midsection from one of the hunters. The Blessed One apparently has crouched behind a mighty tree and jumped out at one of the local bears. Unfortunately, Grimblebang was already aiming for the bear and had already let fly his side-splitting shaft. The Blessed One got in the way of his shot. Oh my god! The Blessed One is dead! The elf to her left, with a measure of extreme shock and volume, pumped up and exclaimed. Jellyton was not one to mince her thoughts, what few she actually acquired in the absurdly squeaky head of hers. But, 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 I just saw him walk past outside the barn, said another of the women's circle. Janie was a little less flustered, but much more conniving. Now, now, ladies, we don't know that Santa is dead. All we know is that he's been wounded. Now quicken up your pace, Kevin, and give me the rest of the story. She felt it necessary to impose some sense of calm. Things must not be let get out of hand, not yet, at least wise. Well, the assembled hunters attempted to staunch the bleeding. They refrained from removing the enormous bolt that Grimblebang was wont to use, for fear that doing so would only worsen the wound. They applied as much pressure as they could and tried to keep the blood contained. They bound snow and ice around the wound to diminish the blood flow. At this point in his retelling, he paused, looking down towards his pointy shoes and shook his head. He might well have been truly sad, she thought. Yes, yes, go on now, she urged the little fellow. Well, ma'am, 
I believe the situation is most dire. Extreme, if you catch my meaning. We've got him back in his rooms, and the surgeons have been summoned and are attending to him now. I came here as soon as I could, ma'am. He backed away slowly, trying to maintain his demeanor of sorrow and sincerity as he motioned her towards the front of the building, Santa's research room. He had a spare bed and small workshop there. Within, there were all sorts of tools and contraptions for him to kick about and experiment with odd things. Well then, let us be off, Kevin. Lead the way. Go, go, go. She hurried behind him, his little footsteps somehow outstretching her longer ones. These elves could move surprisingly fast, she mused. Swiftly they scampered down the hallways past crowds of hungering eyes, all of them waiting, worrying, and wondering about the news that had swept through the workshop like wildfire. She could hear some of the whispering. They echoed Jellyton's earlier outburst and worse besides. She scanned the sea of twisted faces. The elves were an unlovely lot, that was for certain. Never quite sure what had occurred to bring her and her husband to such an unusual fate, she often wondered how life would have been if their ship had not broken down on the shore so long ago. All of these thoughts flashed through her mind while she and the unseemly elf navigated the twisting hallways and the abundance of bodies. They slowed to a stop. A larger-than-normal crowd were rapidly staring towards her husband's room. The door closed against prying eyes. All of the unsightly creatures stood gawking and chattering quietly with enough roughness to sound like a sea of insects. Ahem! Kevin was unctuously officious, and sometimes usefully so, as the sea of concerned souls suddenly fell completely quiet and made way for them. The silence was deadening as it rolled past the hundreds of elves in the hallway. A corridor of space miraculously parted the sea of bodies to allow them closer to the door. Almost timidly, she reached out to the door handle and pulled the door open. She paused a moment as she caught the eye of a particular elf lurking in the background. He smiled smugly as he winked, a small swath of blood smudging his forehead in the dim light. Charlie liked to stay in the shadows, always had. He was creepy that way. It's why so few of the elven brotherhood ever dined to stay with him, let alone recognize his presence. Even in a hunting party, he would usually be hunting alone. She was not surprised to see him here, waiting with the others. She shook her head and concentrated on what lay behind the door. Quickly, she stepped inside. The scent of blood was strong in the air. The surgeons, their stubby little fingers furiously working around the mass of gore that still represented her husband, or what still remained of him. She could see the spear that had impaled him through the stomach, the gore dripping down its side. Her husband lay dying on the workshop table, and the strongest impression she could recall was how he liked snowball fights. And then, there he was, lying motionless on the table, like so much meat. His red and white suit, torn, ripped, pulled back from his chest, exposing his hairy girth to the open air so that the surgeons could work cleanly. Their instruments had been laid down, their heads sagged, as they showed clearly that they had admitted defeat and could do no more. They looked at her, and they expressed their sorrow at being unable to do more. They wiped their hands across their aprons as they cleaned their implements with care. Leave me with him. Her voice was forceful, strong, resolute, but still with a tear threatening to be born. The physicians and helpers and even Kevin slowly filed out of the room. When she was sure that they were all gone, she whirled to where she knew he was lurking as she locked the door. You bastard! Why are you here? They catch you here and your goose will be cooked sure as sugar cane. She saw him there, in the corner, hiding in the shadows that he often called friend. I had to make sure that it was clean, that it was done, finished. His voice was gravelly, more than a little unusual amongst the elves. He was one of the few who grew into a baritone as opposed to an alto. It lent to his air of foreboding amongst the rest of the hunters. Well, it's clear that he's done for. Nobody suspected anything? 
She was inspecting the body as she spoke, looking for clues, making sure that there was none. Nope. They all think it was an accident, that Grimblebang's spear launcher went off as it did, that the bear was there where he was, and that Santa was running to the bear, as opposed to running away from someone else. Nope. Not a thing. He was a smug little bastard, as he ticked off the mental points while he spoke. Good, good, good. But you should not be here. This is a delicate part of the operation. Nothing can be permitted to go wrong. If it does, it will mess up the whole thing. I can't have that happen. Not now, not when I'm so close. She quietly moved around the body, shifting bits and pieces of the flesh from his chest. The surgeons had cut away a lot of the outer layers, trying to get out as much of the invasive pieces of wood as they could. They cut away a lot of flesh, exposing the ribs and the organs inside. She was familiar with what they were trying to do, remove the spear and then sew it all back up again as quickly as possible. It might have worked if the spear hadn't been smeared with various agents that would now infect most of the flesh that had it scraped past. You must leave. Now. I can't do that. Not until I claim my piece. He's my kill. I must have my trophy. They'll do more than just kill you if they suspect that you were here in any way responsible. Why take that chance? It's the hunter's credo. Respect the body of the one slain. Carry a piece of that soul with you forevermore. I will have my peace. He was resolute. She could see that there was no way to budge him. His eyes burned with fierceness that he rarely ever allowed to bubble to the surface. Fine, go ahead. He bent down to the open chest, and with a fierce wrench and a vicious twist of his knife, cracked one of the rib bones, pulling out a piece of bone no bigger than his finger. Satisfied now? Now get out of here, I have work to do. Yes, my lady, I will disappear now. And with that, he silently slipped back into the shadow and out the open window beside Santa's workbench. She shook her head as she continued to move bits of the flesh back into the open cavity. With a scalpel left behind by the surgeons, she carved various symbols into the flesh of the Blessed One. Odd, sinuous, painfully disturbing symbols that all seemed to twist and blend one into the other. It did not take her long to finish what she was doing to his body. There was a knocking at the door and an inquiring voice, but she ignored it as she started to chant. It was a fierce but odd language, one that had not been spoken for many, many lifetimes upon this shore. It was also a short chant, but the bones of the little workshop witnessed its viciousness. The walls were splattered with droplets of blood like crimson sparkles that dotted the snow outside. She hung her head, her energy spent, as she knew what came next. Covered in blood, she shambled to the door and unlocked it. The sea of small faces stared back at her with rapt interest. North Pole, we have a problem. Everybody, run! And she did precisely what she had said and started to run. The elves looked confused as she quickly ran away, sprinkling drops of blood as she went. That was when they heard the moan coming out of Santa's workroom, followed quickly by a dull thud, like a body hitting the floor. The noise of shuffling soon followed. A place of folly, a place of mirth, an unmade man, an unholy birth, wickedly crafted, tortured in tone, rough-hewn flesh amidst broken bone. A place of weight, a place of girth, an awkward fate to rise from this earth. Steeped in mystery, shrouded in red. Maybe that's it. He's better off dead. A place of snow, a place of ice. Nowhere to go, unholy and not nice. This path is twisted, broken and torn. Now Santa will never be reborn. Our final tale is from Crystal Burke, who has just released No Escape, book two of the Book of Eve series, available now as an ebook on Amazon 
and a paperback in early 2017. Enjoy. Continue along this path until you reach a house, Owen muttered to himself as he stepped over a tree root jutting up from the ground. Tell the truth, stay alive. He suppressed a shiver and decided that when he got back to Rolling River, he would move to Thailand and never speak to anyone again. He didn't want to admit it, least of all to himself, but he was having some serious regrets about following Levi through the gate. Every time he tripped over something in the dark, and especially when he fell, he was reminded that he wasn't like Jordan. There wasn't anything special or magical about him. After a time, the trail curved, taking him up a slight incline. The trees thinned on either side, allowing slices of moonlight to slip through their leaves. At the bottom of the hill stood a house, surrounded by a wooden fence. Each post proudly displayed a gleaming white human skull. This time, the shiver shot down his spine. The hairs on the back of his neck and arms stood at attention. Jesus, he thought to himself, what have I gotten myself into? Nothing prevented him from turning around and heading back towards the gate. Except I have no idea how to get there, he told himself. He shifted his weight and ran a hand through his hair. There was also a chance that having him show up at this house was a setup, except... Levi seemed pretty scared to see me here. Shit, he muttered, before starting down the hill towards the house. He kept his movements slow, making sure to keep an eye on the skulls. Some seemed to laugh at him through gaping jaws. Others gave him solemn silence. All of them watched him. He could feel their gazes crawl over him, even though their sockets were dark and empty. For a moment... He tried staring back, but he felt something wrench painfully from somewhere deep inside his body. A whispered threat swirled around his head. They wanted his soul. He quickly shifted his attention to the house beyond the skulls. With its deep, sloping roof that almost touched the ground and large round door with two panes of decorative glass on either side, it looked perfectly quaint. It was a sharp, shocking contrast to the fence surrounding it. When Owen reached the gate, he glanced down warily at the latch, which was, of course, adorned with a tiny skull. The leaves above him danced in the gentle breeze, casting shadows over the white bone. The whispers turned mocking, so he let himself inside before they convinced him to leave. After checking that the gate was secure behind him, he rubbed his hand against the back of his pants. The outline of the skull's tiny sockets felt like it had etched itself into his palm. Hunching his shoulders against the fence, he turned to make his way up the path. What in the name of... His mouth dropped open in disbelief. The small cottage rose up onto two thin, yellowish legs. Each had three skinny toes splayed out over the ground. Short, sharp claws dug into the dirt, destroying a flower bed and most of the grass. It looked like an oversized chicken with a house stuck on its head. A woman's voice, cracked with age, filled the air. "'Why have you come here?' Owen crouched and covered his ears with his hands. He took another look at the house's legs and came to the conclusion that there was no way he could outrun them. He recalled Levi's instructions. "'Don't lie. Tell the truth,' he told himself. He stood up and took a deep breath. "'I'm sorry to bother you,' he shouted. "'I was told to come here.' "'And how did you get here?' the woman asked. He gave his answer some thought. 
Through a gate, he told her. The woman didn't respond. He toyed with the idea of putting some distance between him and the house, but could still feel the skulls watching him. He didn't dare move, but he thought it wise to keep an eye on the house's feet in case they decided to get too close. Come in, the woman finally said. Bending at the knees, the house lowered itself back to the ground. As the dust settled, Owen stuffed his shaking hands into his pockets and walked up the stone path. The front door opened on its own, beckoning him inside. Before he stepped across the threshold, he glanced over each shoulder. Levi, you better not leave me here, he thought. He entered the house through the kitchen. A sturdy wooden table lined with different herbs, dirt still clinging to their roots, sat in the middle of the room. In one corner, a fire, lit within a wide cooking fireplace, crackled merrily. Above the flames, an iron pot hung with the lid half on. "'Come in, come in!' The woman's voice was nearby, and without the trees to echo against, she sounded frail and harmless. "'Let me have a look at you.' There was only one open doorway on the other side of the kitchen. Owen headed for it. At first, all he could see was a large braided area rug covering the floor. When he got closer, he realized it was almost the only item furnishing the room. A rocking chair creaked in the corner of the room farthest from him. Sitting in it was a squat woman, her face a map of deep lines and wrinkles. Almost everything about her reminded Owen of his grandmother, down to the knitting needles clacking away in her hands. The only difference was that her nose was so large that it touched the ceiling and took up most of the space in the room. "'Do I frighten you?' she asked, lowering the yarn into her lap. Owen licked his lips and tried not to stare. "'Yes,' he replied. "'I've never met anyone like you in my life.' The woman's thin lips cracked a smile. It didn't make him feel any safer. "'You're familiar with my kind and our worlds, then?' she asked. Shifting from one foot to the other, Owen debated on how to best answer the question. "'I deal with demons now and then.' Why have you come knocking on my door? Eager to get to the point, he stepped forward. I'm looking for the light of morning, he told her without hesitation. Ah, I see. The woman pursed her lips and turned her attention back to her knitting. Who sent you? There wasn't any way around the truth. Leviathan, he answered. Her hands stilled. Well, her cheeks puffed slightly as she let out a breath. Well, she repeated, shaking her head before letting out a soft chuckle. My grandson didn't happen to tell you what he's really after, did he? Grandson? Owen silently cursed the man. That lying son of a... He set me up, he thought. Failed to mention that we're related, did he? The woman shifted in the rocker, her nose scraped along the roof as she turned her head. Answer the question. Did Levi tell you what he really wants? That is our show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at GL Horror Podcast and on Facebook as the Great Lakes Horror Company. You can also pick up our new anthology, Group Hex Volume 1, on Amazon. It's available as both print and ebook for Kindle. On behalf of everyone here at the Great Lakes Horror Company, Seasons Grievings. <laughs>